Now, everybody in the ministry loves that movie. Do you know why? Because everyone in the ministry has a Bob Wiley. Every one of us does. Every counselor does. Lila, you had one, didn't you? You know you did. Come on, admit it. Uh, that's a man right there. That clip represents two things I think we can all agree on. Number one, that clip is about a multiphobic man whose life is almost paralyzed by fear and worry. And number two, I think we can all agree with this. This is not the dream of any of us for any of us. Man, none of us wants anybody we care about to live with the stress and the problems that always accompany being consumed by fear and worry. Uh, None of us want our friends to be in the hospital because they're having panic attacks or being medicated for hypertension or, you know, because we've got a classmate who's attempted suicide because depression had set in and they didn't know how to handle the stress of life. Uh, When I told Sarah I was going to show that clip, she was concerned that people would think I was trying to make fun of people with problems. And I said, baby, I am one of those people with problems. I mean, I wake up sometime at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering how I'm going to solve some problem or figure out some dilemma, and I'm one of the most blessed people I know. I can't imagine what other people are having to deal with. But one of the things I like about this clip is that even Hollywood comedy has to root so many of our problems in our response to fear and worry. And friends, Jesus had a lot to say about fear and worry. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to let Jesus teach us how to deal with worry the worry that follows the fears that we all face. Now, if you're new to our church, we've got a blue Bible in the chair close by. Uh, turn to page 871, and you'll be right at, this, right at the spot where we're going to start reading. Uh, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Uh, these are the words of Jesus. I tell you, my friends, do not fear. Uh, I love the way Jesus starts this thought with a compliment and a command. Uh, he compliments us. He calls us friends, which I think is really, really important to understand, and it'll be more important as we go on. And then he commands us, do not fear. Do not let fear run your life because I know where that path leads and you don't want to go there. So do not fear. And then he clarifies why we don't need to be pushed around by fear and worry. In verse 6 he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not, you are of much more value than many sparrows. Now, friends, fear causes worry, and if this is not a problem, Jesus would not have commanded us, fear not. Fear not is the most often repeated command in the Bible because he knew what we all know. Worry and fear are formidable foes. Now, let's talk for just a moment about fear and worry. Dr. Ed Welch is a Christian counselor who's written a book entitled Running Scared, uh, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. And I think you can get it at the bookstore uh, this weekend uh, if you're interested in reading up on this issue. Uh, And we all know that leaders are readers, uh, especially when you're trying to lead your way out of fear and worry. Dr. Welch says a number of things about fear and worry and the danger they pose, which means that the mental health industry is actually catching up uh, to what Jesus said 2,000 years ago when he said, fear not. Uh, Fear and worry are evidence of vision without hope. You know, if you're a person who has dreams for the future, I mean, you're working hard to make those dreams come true but you're constantly focused on everything that could go wrong, you're going to be consumed by fear and worry. Man, when you buy a house, you know, you do that with the dream of it being a safe place and a fun place for your family and friends and a, you know, financial investment that's going to grow in value and, you know, a place where you're going to make memories that you'll cherish for the rest of your life. And listen, that's a visionary goal. But if you start obsessing about Well, what if the market crashes? And what if the deal goes sideways? And what if I lose my job? You know, which are all things you should consider before you buy a house. But man, if you let those fears run you, 
that house is not going to be a very happy place. Dr. Welsh says, fear and worry seem reasonable even when it's irrational. You know, I have a friend who says, if one person tells you you're a donkey, ignore them. They're a jerk. Uh, if two people tell you you're a donkey, you better look in the mirror. And if three people tell you you're a donkey, you better buy a saddle. But if nobody that loves you is telling you you're a donkey, and you're still afraid you're a donkey, that is an irrational fear. Now, I don't know if you heard that Dr. John Nash died in a car wreck back in May. Uh, Dr. Nash was a Princeton University mathematician, uh, won a Nobel Prize for his work. Sadly, uh, he developed schizophrenia. His wife, Alicia, wrote a book about his struggle with schizophrenia and how he was able to continue to function because he learned how to think his way out of the irrational, paralyzing fears that were sparked by his mental illness. And the book she wrote was entitled A Beautiful Mind, and Ron Howard made a movie about it several years ago. But friends, even when your fears are irrational, they still feel real to you. Uh, fear and worry are strengthened by self-centeredness. You know, there are three opportunities for fear and worry to attack us all. Uh, number one, when we don't get what we want. Now, we hope we'll get married or have children or, or graduate or get a job or serve God in some meaningful way. And that's not happening. Or, or I want a promotion. But the answer is no. They give it to somebody else. And then fear attacks. And we begin to worry. It's never going to happen. How are we going to make it? Uh, fear and worry become a factor when we get what we want, but we fear losing it. You know, sometimes success is more fearful than failure is. I'm married. Praise the Lord. What if she cheats on me? What if we get divorced? We're pregnant. That's amazing. What, what if she miscarries? The child is born. Man, what if they grow up and they don't love the Lord? We got the house. Well, what if we can't make the, the mortgage payment? What if I lose my job? What then? You know, sometimes actually getting what your heart longs for can set the stage for fear and worry about losing it. We also face fear and worry when we get what we don't want. The doctor said it was cancer. I don't want that. I, I got fired. I, I never saw this coming. Uh, my spouse left me. Nobody wants to marry me. And then fear comes. Fear and worry reveal our values and, and our loves and our longings. You know, you only really fear losing what you love. And you only really fear getting hit by what you hate. And so our fears actually reveal in a way what's really important to us. And, and there's a way to actually redeem this. You know, if you see a consistent pattern of worry on some issue, then one thing you know for sure is you are not trusting the Lord on that issue. You cannot trust the Lord and worry at the same time. Amen? Yeah. Can't do it both at the same time. And so like Dr. Nash, if you can learn to let that fear trigger a spiritual sense of focus, and man, if you're a believer, that focus causes you to pray and make that issue, make that issue something you're going to work on trusting to God, then that fear can actually become your servant. Uh, number five, fear and worry are multiplied by freedom. Now again, this is, a, this is an unusual side of fear. The more options you have, the more locked up you can be by fear and worry. Okay, we can buy a house, but where do we want to buy it? Uh, what school do we want the kids to go to? We have options. Uh, what degree should I pursue? Uh, who am I going to date? There's so many good-looking women out there. Well, if I get married, I'll have to pick just one. Uh, listen, if we have lots of choices, man, an abundance of choices can often lead us to fear and worry as well. Number six, fear and worry create false prophets. You know, Dr. Welch makes this point in his book, and it's a really important point. False prophets are people who predict the future and are wrong. They're very specific about predicting the future. They're just wrong. Just like us, most of the time, when we worry. Amen? Amen. Think about how many things you've worried about 
That never happened. Do you know how many moms I've prayed for right down here in front of this pulpit because they have a son or daughter going on a short-term mission trip and they are scared to death. Okay, mom, I'm just afraid, pastor. What if they get Ebola? Well, they they don't have Ebola in East Tennessee, ma'am. You don't know that. Okay, okay. What if they get eaten by an alligator or get run over by some fool in a truck? Well, like, dog, that could happen right here in Savannah, man. I mean, there's a pretty good chance of that happening right here. I asked a mom one time, did it ever occur to you that the worst possible thing might not happen? She looked at me like I was the devil. (laughs) Turned and walked off and never said a word. And I haven't really used that line since then because I'm not sure that's something a pastor should actually ask somebody. But anyway, I I think the dark side of having great love is when what you love becomes almost an idolatrous thing for you and you become overprotective and you let fear lead you to freak out and worry all the time instead of trusting God and praying. Number seven, fear and worry are sinful unless they are properly leveraged. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you're afraid that if something happened to you, your kids wouldn't be able to afford to go to college, and if that motivates you to buy life insurance to to help make your family secure, then that fear served you. That's a good thing. Man, fear doesn't have to manipulate us in a bad way. It can motivate us sometimes in a good way. I mean, if fear of what might happen to your daughter or your son on their first date motivates you to sit down and have a a great eye-to-eye talk with them or sit down with that person they're going out with and have a great talk with them or sit down with that person they're going out with and show them your gun collection, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Uh, I mean, there's a difference between being fearful of walking through a snaky-looking area of woods barefooted and being so locked up you can't enjoy a picnic out in a, a manicured park. One fear makes you really smarter. Uh, One fear makes you really sadder. And in this passage, Jesus is commanding us not to let ourselves be manipulated by this sad, life-sucking kind of fear. Now, friends, every fear is an opportunity to either run from God or to run to God as a source of comfort and hope and help. And, friends, one of the main gifts that Jesus is going to give us today is he's going to teach us uh, that fear and worry are usually the result of bad theology. You know, if you're somebody who's consumed with fear and worry, it's because of faulty theology. Do you hear about the little boy who was running down the stairs and he told his mom, there's a lion in the front yard. And she looked out the front window and she saw this big brown dog walking down the sidewalk. And she corrected her son. She said, son, it's not a lion, that's a dog. And he said, yes, it is a lion. She said, son, it's not a lion. Uh, and, And to insist that it is, is a lie. And he just rudely said, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. It is a lion. She said, I want you to go up to that room and we're going to have 30 minutes of time out. And while you're up there, I want you to ask God to forgive you for lying to your mother. And when the 30 minutes was over, he came downstairs and contritely hugged his mom. And she patted him on the head and said, did you ask God to forgive you for lying about that dog? And he said, God said it looked like a lion to him too. <laughs> you <know? laughs> now, you know, <laughs> our theology, our view of God, you know, how we interpret things, uh, how we feel about God really affects our life sometimes. And man, if your theology is wrong, I mean, if you're just wrong-headed about God and Jesus, you're going to miss the blessing of wisdom and strength that come from God and Jesus, especially when you're facing your worst fears. Now, there are two faulty beliefs that I think Jesus is going to clear up for us in this passage in Luke 12. We think Jesus doesn't understand as one of them, but he does. A lot of us feel like, man, not even God knows what I'm going through. Friends, 
This is one of the unique dynamics of the Christian faith. It literally makes following Jesus different from any other religion in the world. Jesus tells us three times in this chapter not to fear. And you know, it would be so easy for us to say to him, I think what a lot of people think about the, the leaders of other religions in the world, easy for you to say. I mean, you say fear not, easy for you to say. You're off in heaven somewhere a million miles away, and, and it's perfect up there, but we're stuck down here. Now, friends, that is faulty theology. And we see that vibe in other world religions. I mean, think about the Hindu gods and the, uh, you know, Allah for the Muslims and, and the African fertility gods and the idols that represent them. All of them are images of distant, remote judges, uninvolved in anybody's life, removed from the dust and the danger and the disappointment of life. Not, go, not so with God. That's not true of Jesus or of the Holy Spirit. Listen, God came to earth where we live. In the form of Jesus. This is the most epic expression of humility of all time. That God was born as Jesus in a stable in Bethlehem. And grew up in a third world country around simple blue collar people. Worked in the construction trade until he began preaching the gospel for which he was crucified. And then resurrected and seen by thousands of eyewitnesses. Think about what that means. He's been here. Our God has lived here. He knows what it's like to be here. He knows what it's like to be afraid because he's been afraid. He has felt threatened and vulnerable and tired and sick. And he's had to wonder, how am I going to take care of my family? When Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, died and and his mama becomes a single mom and now Jesus is the oldest brother. He's got to take care of business. He knows what that feels like to have that burden drop on him because he's been here. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one and have your heart just break with grief. You know, he wept out loud when his buddy Lazarus died. And I've been in funerals right here in this room and I've watched strong men weep with grief because of some untimely death. And let me tell you, Jesus knows exactly what that grief feels like because he's been there. He knows what it's like to make a living in a hard economy because the economy was tough when the Romans invaded and conquered Israel and and, and that's where he lived. And he knows what it's like to do business in a tough economy because he's, he's had to do it. Hebrews 4.14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now friends, think about this. Whatever fear you have today, Jesus has faced that. Whatever challenge you're looking at today, Jesus has faced that. So whatever you're worrying about today, Jesus has faced it. Let's read this last verse one more time because it's such a powerful uh, passage of Scripture. Let us then with confidence, all together, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, he knows what you're going through. Whatever you're going through, he knows and he cares. This is why Paul, a man who could have been just paralyzed with fear because of all the opposition he faced in his ministry, wrote in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 6, you shouldn't be anxious about, next verse please, don't be anxious about anything. Anything? Yeah. Don't be anxious about anything. Jesus has experienced all that. But in everything by prayer, Now, this word prayer means to to literally put yourself in the presence of God. You're going to think about the fact that you are actually in the presence of God. 
and supplication. That means specific requests. I've got a specific issue that's causing me fear. That fear is causing me worry. I'm going to pray about that specific thing, whatever it is. With thanksgiving. While I'm praying about that specific issue, I'm going to think about all the other times that God has come through for me. I'm going to think about the times that he's been there for me, he's comforted me, he's sent somebody into my life. So I'm going to make my request with thanksgiving. I'm going to make my request known to God. And then look at what will begin to replace the fear and worry in your life. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Friends, it doesn't matter what you're going through. When you pray to him, instead of worrying, his peace begins to replace the fear and the worry that just stalks us all. So, man, if you think what you're facing is so tough and so unique that Jesus couldn't possibly understand what you're going through, that's just faulty theology. You're misinformed. Friends, what you don't understand is how much he loves you. The reason he came to earth is so he would understand exactly what you're going through, and he does. But there's one more faulty uh, belief that really hurts us when we're afraid. We think that God doesn't care. But he actually does. We think he's so big and he's so strong and so far away that he doesn't care. But friends, he does. Now, in in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, Jesus is going to help us see how God feels about us. Now, if you think that God doesn't know where you are or doesn't care about what you're facing or understand how hard your life is right now, uh, friends, you're just not tracking with what Jesus came to teach us about his father. So I'm going to start reading in verse 22, and we're going to drill right down through this whole passage. And Jesus is going to try to show me Because I have a feeling that maybe this sermon is just for me. But Jesus is going to show me layer after layer after layer of God's love for me. And if I believe that, if I believe him, then my theology will begin to stabilize me and encourage me when I face the things I fear. And and I'm tempted to worry about those things. Look at verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Now there's that command again, do not worry. Why does he say that? Because life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Now friends, Jesus wants us to understand that God considers me as more than just a physical body. Let's say this all together so we can kind of stamp it. All together now. God considers me as more than just a physical body. Now, friends, if you were to live to be 75 or 80 years old, and, you're, and this body is all there is, and, and you know this life is all there is, well, then it would make perfect sense to just be consumed with clothing the body and feeding the body and working out the body and protecting the body and piling up as much money as you possibly can to support the body. But Jesus says, look, life for us is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Do you know why you're here today? You're here today because your whole life God has been reaching out to the eternal, spiritual, inner person who lives in your body. He has been calling you and convicting you and wooing you and sending people into your life to get you here today so that you would learn that you are an eternal being that's been made in the the image of God and that God loves you. And one day this body will die, but nothing else will die about you. There is an internal being that is eternal that is going to live forever somewhere. And God wants you to live with him in heaven as he designed. And so all your life he's been coming after you, coming after you because he loves you. So man, if God is working all the time to reach that inner spirit within you, then of course he's going to take care of the body that houses that inner man. I mean, can you imagine a world-class heart surgeon spending 12 hours doing this meticulous heart transplant to put a new heart in somebody's body? 
uh, and have it go so well and, and then sew the guy up, but then neglect to order the bed or the blankets or the food or drink or post-op care, and then the guy dies 10 days later of starvation. Ain't no way in the world that's going to happen. That surgeon is going to say, look, if I'm going to do all that work on your inside, you can be sure, brother, I'm going to be making sure that you will have a bed and food and drink and basic care on the outside. Now, friends, that's kind of the spirit of what I think Jesus is trying to say to people who love God. Listen, the God who created this universe has seen the really important stuff inside of you, and that great physician has done a transforming work on your heart, and that same great physician who who breathed life into that dead spirit that had been killed by sin is going to see to it that daily food and clothing and needs are met because really compared to transforming your heart, taking care of that other stuff is just, it's just small stuff. Jesus goes on to remind us that God actually cares about things of less value than he puts on me. Let's say this all together, y'all. God cares about things of less value than he puts on me. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much valuable are you than birds? Now, you know, when I read this, I wonder if Jesus is kind of providing some ironic humor for this talk a little bit. You know, he's talking about how God has provided this ecosystem that feeds and cares for even the birds of the air. And so, of course, what he's saying, if if God cares for the birds of the air, of course he's going to take care of you. But of all the birds to pick, he picks a raven. I mean, not a sparrow or a dove or an eagle or a hawk, a raven. Man, ravens were considered scavengers. They they were considered unclean by the Jewish people who would never eat one, never even touch one. Nobody would even dream of having a raven for a pet, except for Edgar Edgar Allan Poe. And yet, as nasty and outlaw as these birds were, our gracious God feeds them every day. Feeds them every day. Man, you never see a bird flying over and hear it go... And then it just starts this terminal glide path in and bam, crash and burn because it ran out of gas. Birds don't run out of gas, man. God feeds them every day. In fact, they don't even stockpile resources. When it gets too cold, they move to Savannah, brother. They just migrate right down here where God sets up this big picnic. Uh, and, and you know what? They just trust for God to provide. They don't even know to trust God. He just does. So I think this is kind of a reverse illustration where Jesus is saying, bro, if God takes care of a nasty raven that has no eternal soul, runs into the window one day and boom, lights out forever, how much more do you think the God who created you as an eternal being who wants eternal fellowship with you is going to take care of you? Now, the ravens have to work for it. You know, God doesn't send a UPS truck with a delivery to the ravens every day. But if he provides for them, surely I know that he cares for me and he's going to provide for me too. So don't be discouraged. God is going to provide for you. Consequently, God calls me to invest my energy in constructive efforts that produce good. Let's say it all together, y'all. God calls me to invest my energy in constructive efforts. Now, again, I think maybe there's a little Jewish humor, you know, here. And, and, you know, Jewish humor uh, works differently than ours does. Uh, Back in the day when some ancient Middle Eastern Jewish person wanted to use humor, uh, they would also use some crazy exaggeration or, or maybe sarcasm. Uh, And I guess we kind of do the same thing here today. But I think Jesus is digging at everybody a little bit here. Look at verse 25. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Now, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? I mean, I can just see Jesus saying, so 
when you really get your game face on and you really suck it up and do some world-class worrying, how's that working for you? What does that accomplish for you? I mean, you know, if you're short and you just think if I was three inches taller, that's all I need is three inches more. And you really worry about it. You do like Michael Jordan did. You know, you hang weights off the end of the bed on your ankles, you know, to pull the legs out. And you worry, worry, worry. Can you add a single inch to your height by worrying? Or, or if you're afraid you might die too young and you really get your worry on, man, you just start worrying about it every day, does that add a single hour to your life? No. I mean, scientists say it takes hours away from your life. I was flying to uh, Washington, D.C. one Sunday afternoon after church. Uh, Dave Stewart and I were on our way to Joburg in, in South Africa for our first visit uh, to our partners in Zimbabwe. Uh, and, man, I had spoken four or five times that weekend, and so I was just done, all right? I mean, I was whipped. So I got in the airplane. I sat back, lights out, bam, right to street, right to sleep. Sitting next to me was this woman from California, and she was a vice president at Hewlett-Packard. And she had flown into Savannah to buy a beach house where her mom was going to live, and she spent the weekend at Tybee and was telling me how wonderful it was. And I was like, great. I was gone, man, all right? So on the way to, on the way to D.C., we hit these storms that are, were so severe that they landed our airplane twice. Unscheduled landings. One time at an airport with no services. They landed that plane twice on the way to D.C. Turbulence. The turbulence was bad. Bad storm, all right? And so I am sleeping. I am asleep in Jesus, all right? And all of a sudden I hear her, bam, she grabs my arm. And I'm like, what? And I looked up. And there she was, and she was so apologetic. But, man, she was just so scary. And you know how they are, you know, when these nervous flyers, and they're looking around like this and wringing their hands, and they're looking around everywhere to see the wing fall off, and they're kind of gasping for breath. And I was like, you okay? Yes, ma'am. Right by the sleep, man. I was gone, all right? And then it happened again. Boom, she grabbed me again. It was like her hand had Tourette's, you know what I'm saying? It was just like she couldn't stop it, right? And so I looked at her, and I smiled at her, and she gives me this imploring look like, dude, can't you wake up and worry with me? And, and can, I, can I just say to all of you hand-wringing, nervous, gasping, pastor-grabbing flyers out there, you know, who, who just worry like crazy in bad weather, I have done quite a bit of flying in my life. I have flown airplanes, and I've been a passenger in a lot of airplanes. And my commitment to heart-pounding, hand-wringing, shirt-soaking anxiety has never had one single effect on the performance of that airplane or that pilot in any perceivable way as far as I can tell. But you know what I have done? I have prayed. When I get in bad weather, I pray. And then I use my other spiritual gift, I fall back to sleep, all right? (laughs) And I wake up on the ground rested, safe in the hands of God. Now, I don't think that's because I'm more courageous than anybody else. I just think I'm stabilized by my theology. My theology is worry don't help, prayer does. Can I get amen? Amen. And if that plane breaks up at 30,000 feet, worrying ain't going to make a bit of difference in that either. Because about eight minutes later, I'm going to be in heaven with God with no further need for a pilot, right? Worry doesn't help. So why not use the energy you spend on worry on something that will? Like prayer. You know, when we put Harrison on an airplane when he was in college to do an internship, internship in New Zealand, and, man, he walked on that causeway. Sarah and I watched that boy going across the Pacific for the summer. We didn't worry. We prayed. Lord, he's in your hands. That's our prayer. He's in your hands, Lord. When Garrett got in his truck, which God gave us, by the way, uh, to leave Savannah and drive to San Francisco where he was doing a ministry internship one summer, and he, he just wanted to drive the whole way out. It was a big adventure for him. Sarah and I didn't worry. 
we prayed, Lord, he's in your hands. That's our prayer. Uh, when Sarah's, you know, on the road at night because she's been leading some women's Bible study at the Effingham campus or at the East campus or Compassion or something like that, you know, I don't worry. I just pray, Lord, she's in your hands. You know, worry doesn't help. Praying for God to watch over my wife does. That actually makes a difference. I've learned worry doesn't. I've also learned that God clothes me like he does the flowers. Now, I'm not a lily kind of guy, all right? Can I just say right now? I'm, I'm not feeling the lily side of my personality on this. But look at, look at verse 27. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Now, think of the contrast Jesus is trying to make here. Nothing is more radiant than spring flowers that God invented, created, just to make the world beautiful. They don't have any purpose at all. He just made them so that the world would be more beautiful. And Solomon, the richest man anybody ever heard of back in the day, could not afford to dress as well, well enough to even rival the beauty of God's creation. And so if God clothes the world with beautiful wildflowers, it'll be here for a season and then gone, how can you know God and doubt that he's going to take care of you? You know, when Sarah and I moved here to Savannah, uh, I had been in graduate school. I left graduate school to come here to be the pastor of this church. I was preaching part-time at this little church up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and going to graduate school in East Tennessee. And Savannah Christian called us, and so we moved down here. We had two children. Cam, our oldest son, was two years old. Harrison was two weeks old. Uh, we had a broke-down car. We had a house we couldn't sell in Rock Hill, so I rented it at a monthly loss and moved to Savannah, and we rented an apartment here. Uh, we actually took a pay cut uh, when we came from Rock Hill here to Savannah Christian, and they had benefits for us, no benefits here at the church back in the day. And, and of course, we were tithing, so I'm telling you, financially, it was brutal. Uh, I mean, it, it, was, it was so tight, you know, and Sarah was at home with our two babies and serving as a volunteer here at church, and and she was so supportive and, and so helpful. I mean, she's just the best, man. But I'm telling you, financially, <laughs> that was the toughest year of our lives. I mean, I'd just come from graduate school, and so I had a great collection of blue jeans and flannel shirts, not equipped with any pastoral raiment. You know what I'm talking about? And back in 1984, it was coats and ties every weekend. For those of you in the 20s, a coat is a jacket-looking thing you put over <laughs> a tie, get done like that, all right? And I mean, I just didn't, I, listen, I didn't have a lot of nice suits. Uh, I think I had one suit, and, and it wasn't that nice. And, and we had this little old lady uh, in our church from England. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And uh, about every six months, she'd say, now, Cam, I want you to go over to J.C. Penney and pick you out a suit. And I would go over to J.C. Penney and uh, pick out a suit. And she'd have it fitted for me. And, and I think in her heart, she just didn't think I had nice enough clothes to be the pastor of this church. (laughs) (laughs) And she knew I couldn't afford to buy these suits, you know, like we wore back in the day. And I'd never said a word about it, but I'm telling you, she just walked, now Cam, I want you to go over. And God used her to clothe me. She clothed me when I could barely clothe myself. We had a guy in our church, uh, it was a member of our church, who sold Allen Edmund shoes. Anybody here got any Allen Edmund shoes? Those are nice shoes. I mean, expensive shoes. I never even heard of them. Because back on the farm, nobody wears them, all right? So, but, but what? Those are nice shoes. I think that guy gave me six or seven pairs of those shoes when I could barely afford to have my own shoes resold. Now, for you young guys, resold is when they take the shoe. <laughs> and instead of throwing it away, you recap it. You with me? All right. That, that's how that works, all right? 
And I'm, telling, I'm still wearing those shoes. I, I've still got them. And I almost wore them tonight, but I didn't, I didn't want to show off too much. Uh, <laughs> but I'm telling you, every time I walk in my closet, I thank God for using Hilda to clothe me. Uh, every time I walk in my closet, I thank God for that guy who provided me with those shoes. I, I remember we had these two little babies, and you know how it is. They grow, grow, grow so fast, you know. And I mean, it's like, baby, stretch this stuff out. It'll work. Just stretch it a little bit, you know. And, and Jay, we're running through clothes, and, and we're like, and you know, God provided nicer hand-me-downs to just families in our church uh, than, than we could have ever bought. And every time we change those boys, I just thank God for providing for me and my family. And, you, you know, Jesus said, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? You know, this is the way it is with worry. You start out with little faith, but the more you put faith in God, the stronger your faith becomes. The more often you trust the Lord, the more often you believe the Lord, the stronger your faith becomes. And you know, by God's grace, my faith has grown from trusting God for suits and shoes and baby clothes to student ministry buildings and worship centers and school buildings on five continents around the world. Because I'm telling you, man, when you learn to trust God like he's your daddy, your faith begins to grow. Jesus goes on to say, God claims me as part of his family. Boy, this is good news. Friends, Jesus assures me that God is never, ever, ever going to see me or treat me like a fatherless child. That ain't going to happen. He says in verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father, I love that. He could have said your judge, your creator, your president, your boss, your commander. And God is all those things to me. And I respect him for all of those things. But that's not how Jesus says God reacts to me. That's not how God chooses to relate to me. He says your father, your father knows what you need. And he will see that you have them. And then finally Jesus taught me God creates blessing when I prioritize him. Say it with me, everybody. Big voice now. God creates blessing when I prioritize him. Look at verse 31. You seek his kingdom, and then all these things will be given to you as well. What things? The necessities of life. You know, the needs, not the greeds, not necessarily the luxuries of life, not the sharper image stuff in the catalog or, or the lifestyles of the rich and famous stuff. Not that, but, but he will meet your need for daily bread and appropriate apparel, an acceptable shelter, and the basic provisions of life. You have a Father in heaven who promises to come through for those of us who seek his kingdom first and trust him. And you know what? If I had to boil this all down today, I'd say that the thing that keeps me from fear and worry is knowing that God is for me. He's for me. Most people don't think that. They don't realize that God is for us. If you don't know that, hopefully you've heard that all through this today. God is for us. Sean had us sing that a few minutes ago. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul wrote in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Say it with me, everybody. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Say it with me now. If God is for us, who can be against us? One more time now, like sons and daughters of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And who cares? Who cares? If God is for us, what do you got to worry about? Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to remind us that you are for us, that you love us, that you provide for us in the most basic ways. 
The Lord, if we trust you and we walk with you, we'll see you show up in our lives in ways that <laughs> we'll be telling stories about 30 years later. Father, thank you for building my faith just by showing up in my life, just by honoring the trust I put in you. And I pray, God, that there will be many here today who will do the same thing. They'll put their trust in you and then begin to look at what happens next. And they'll begin to see you showing up in their life over and over, using you, being used by you, being blessed by you, being protected by you, being encouraged by you. And I pray, God, that we'll enjoy living in your presence. And, Lord, say goodbye to fear and worry. We pray this in Jesus' strong name, Lord. Amen.